it's, it's funny, we sing these Easter songs that Christ is risen, and I get so excited for Easter, I just want to preach Easter sermon this morning. I just want to ditch Ephesians and talk about Easter. I'm not going to do that, but I just am so excited for two weeks from today, Easter Sunday, the Sunday in the life of the church where we celebrate that uh, Jesus' friends and, and those who followed him went to the tomb to anoint his body, just make sure that, that this dead friend that they had just buried, his body was honored and taken care of. And what did they find? Nothing. It's the best nothing that's ever happened in the history of the world. And the angel that was there responded to them. Like, I, just, I love the question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the dairy in the produce section? That's not what's here. The living is not among the dead. And two weeks from this Sunday, we start a series called Take Heart. And we've been praying for friends and family and those who don't know Jesus personally, who've never, who've never said yes to him. We've been praying as a congregation, God, would you bring people this Easter season for those five weeks of Take Heart? And I'll tell you, I'll just kind of clue you in as to what we're talking about two weeks from today. Jesus says right before he goes to the cross, take heart, I have overcome the world. So that's what we're talking about two weeks from now. How many of you have been praying along with me for friends and family and by name? Shoot your hand up, would you? Been praying, good, awesome, that's great. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray together about those folks and by name, we're going we're gonna to pray for those folks right now. We're going to pray uh, for, for time in the Word this morning as God kind of opens our eyes and opens our hearts, open our ears to hear what He has to say. And most importantly, like I said, we're going to pray uh, by name for those folks. One real quick thing, and, and before we pray, is you've got a little postcard in your uh, bulletin there this morning. It's a Take Heart postcard. It's got the titles of the messages on the back. Uh, it's got our you know, web address and phone number and all that stuff. Here's the thing. You already know what we're doing, so this postcard is not for you. It's for someone that does not know what we're doing. It's just a tool. We want to put this in your hands to invite someone for that series, that Take Heart series, and we're going to uh, pray for those folks even now by name. So would you join your hearts with me in prayer? God, for uh, the last several weeks here, we've been praying that 100 people would come to know you for the very first time this Easter season in those five weeks. God, so many here have been praying for friends and for family by name, for those that they want to invite, for those that uh, if, if kind of they, they took the exhortation from the sermon a couple weeks ago that we've been bringing into our homes and, and inviting to lunch and dinner and, and, and being bold about the gospel and, and, and inviting uh, them to come experience your grace this Easter season. And right now in this moment, God, you know each name that's on the hearts of those who are gathered here. God, you know their faces. You know how many hairs are on their head. And so we lift them up together and ask God that you would do a work, that you would renew hearts, that you would call people to yourself and that you would use us, oh God, use this community of faith here at Bayview Glen, your humble servants, to call people into your kingdom this Easter season. God, if you want to bring 100, great. If you want to bring 1,000, great. If you want to bring two, great. That is up to you. But God, we come before your throne boldly and ask that you would use us, God, to bring people 
to a saving knowledge of Jesus this Easter season, that they would say yes to him. God, as we have two more weeks in our Ephesians series this week and and next, we just ask that you would continue to speak to us through your word as you've already been so faithful uh, these last several weeks and months as we've studied Ephesians together. So God, just with these last couple weeks, just again we invite you to speak. Again we invite your uh, Holy Spirit's presence here. Again we invite you to open our ears, God, to take off the calluses that might be on our heart, to soften our heart, oh God, to your instruction, to your wisdom, to your encouragement from your word, your book, the Bible today. In the name of Christ, the people of God with enthusiasm said, amen. So listen, before we start today, before we get into the passage, it's Ephesians 6, verse 1 through 9. Don't turn there yet. We'll turn there together in a minute. Before we get there, I wanted to remind you or maybe just tell you for the first time that Paul, who's writing this book, the Apostle Paul, uh, writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, he has a huge challenge before him. He has an extremely tall order before him because, remember, his readers are living within the Roman Empire. So everything that they knew, everything was determined by the world around them and by the Roman Empire. All that they experienced determined by the Roman Empire. All the truth that they were told determined by the Roman Empire. And I don't know if you know this or not, if you're a history buff or not, uh, the, the Roman Empire wasn't exactly based on biblical principles. So, so Paul's got a huge challenge before him. In fact, Paul says that the, that the world that they lived in was dark. That it was driven by the devil's schemes. So Paul's job, and it's a big job, is to redefine the Christ followers' imagination, to overturn their daily realities so they don't simply accept what the empire calls normal. Just a total side note. By the way, what do you think we do when we come here? Redefining imagination, overturning what the empire calls normal, because there's a lot of stuff that this empire that we live in calls normal that ain't normal, it ain't biblical. So that's the tall order, that's the challenge that Paul has before him. So Paul asks this church in Ephesus, what does the empire tell you about money, about sexuality, about family, about health, about what it means to be rich, about God, about spirituality? What does it tell you? Let's turn that on its head. And this redefinition of the Christ follower's imagination and a redefinition of the realities of the empire, a really a rejection of the realities of the empire, is extremely subversive. So subversive, in fact, that it becomes treason and lots of folks, including the guy who wrote this letter, get killed for the stuff that they say. One of them is Christ is Lord. I read down in the scripture and we say Christ is Lord all the time. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. It's kind of easy to say it 2,000 years after the fact. But then if you said those words, if you uttered those words, Christ is Lord, it meant that Caesar was not. And what would they do to you? Bad stuff. Totally treasonous, this stuff. Totally subversive, these truths that Paul is going to teach. And today we come to a passage in Ephesians that affirms some principles that actually brought down one of the greatest empires that ever existed on the face of the planet. 
Paul talks about work and family, the two places that you and I probably spend most of our time, the two places that his readers spent most of their time, and he wants to completely capsize what his readers thought about those two things. He wants to say, what the empire tells you is normal about work and family is not normal, is not biblical. We're going to completely turn it on its head. And the principles that he shares are so subversive, so radical, that many historians will end up suggesting that Christianity was a primary reason that the Roman Empire fell. That's what Paul is going to talk about today in Ephesians 6. So what is it? That historians will say that's the reason, that's one of the primary reasons that the Roman Empire fell? Open up your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to read verse 1 through 9. If you've got your Bibles, great. If not, that's okay. There's, uh, scripture is up here on the screen. We want you to read along with us whether you've got a physical copy of the Bible or not. If you don't have a physical copy of the Bible, come see me. I will find one for you. There's a seat back Bible in front of you. You can use your iPad, your iPhone, whatever, your flip phone. If, you'll, if you're still rocking a flip phone, awesome for you. Appreciate the stewardship there. Um, Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 9. Here's what Paul writes. Here's this totally treasonous, subversive text. Here we go. Children, obey your parents. Some of you are already like, that's it. That is the treason right there. Um, children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right, verse 2. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We're going to spend a lot of time there this morning. Verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. And for some of us, we're thinking, well, that seems like the most vanilla, benign passage the Bible has in it. Like, how is this treason? How is this subversive? So we're going to deal with the passage backwards today because Paul talks about family first and work second. So we're going to talk about work first and then move on to family. So let's talk about what the empire would have told you is normal for work. What the definition of work was in the Roman Empire. At this time in history, Paul is writing, uh, there's about a million people living in Rome. And remember, he is in prison in Rome writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. There's about a million people living there. Over half of them are slaves. Some historians even say that there's 650,000 slaves living in Rome at the time Paul is writing this. And, and in the entire Roman Empire, again, more than half of the entire Roman Empire was a slave. Slaves could not own property. They were property. 
They couldn't leave. They were bound to a master. They had no moral or ethical responsibility. Get that. A slave had no, no morality, no ethics. They were treated like a, like a, like a cow, like a, like, a, like, a, like a chattel, like a piece of property. And property does not have moral or ethical responsibility. Though some had a skill or a trade, they were oftentimes berated, interrogated, abused, and mistreated just like an animal. Many were prisoners of war, and they were most definitely lower human beings than their master. And many of the folks that would have been reading this letter were slaves or slave owners. They were either a master or a slave. And that's the reality that they lived in. Now look back at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. In other words, treat slaves with love, genuine care and concern. Serve them as they serve you and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. What did Paul just say? You're equals. Stop berating. Stop talking down to. Stop threatening. Stop intimidating. Why? Because you've got the same master and he's in heaven. You are on equal ground. And let me tell you that there were some Christian masters that read this and actually took it to heart. They actually did. Can you believe that? They actually did something about it. They just started releasing slaves. I can't own a person. If we're equal, if we're on the same ground, if we, have, if we serve the same master in heaven, you can go. So this free labor force that built the Roman roads and built the Colosseum and built the Pantheon, built all that stuff, Christians just started letting these people go. And now the Roman Empire does not exist anymore. Historians will tell you that Christianity and people taking these realities to heart and capsizing, overturning, changing the realities that they were living in and living out of a biblical reality caused that empire to fall like that. And that's why John Newton and William Wilberforce and Martin Luther King Jr. have been rejecting this stuff for 2,000 years because they love Jesus and everybody serves the same master and there is what? No partiality with him. So Paul says, masters, those who work for you, treat them well. You serve the same master. There's no partiality with him. Now, If masters and slaves are equals, if they stand on equal ground, I would expect Paul to tell slaves, now you start a revolution. Now you revolt. Now you kill your masters and take over the thing and start, you know, whatever. Right? Cause cause a revolution. That's not what he says. Look at verse 5. He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Can you believe that? Subversive with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. You just read it with me. He's telling bond servants, obey your earthly masters. 
Serve them. Treat them well. You know what's interesting to me about those four or five verses there? Five, six, seven, eight. Four verses. Paul says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. So four words in, he mentions earthly masters. After that, he never mentions them again. He talks about Christ. He talks about the Lord. He talks about God. Who is your master? Christ. That's verse 5. Who are you a bondservant of? Christ. That's verse 6. Whose will are you doing? God's will. That's verse 6. Who are you serving? The Lord. That's verse 7. Who will pay your wages in the end? The Lord. That's verse 8. Your earthly master doesn't have anything to do with it. If you are employed, if you work for someone, serve them well because you're serving Christ. So therefore, work hard. Work really hard. And not just when someone is looking as I service, as people pleasers, work hard all the time because who's your real boss? Jesus. And he's ever present. Yikes. So work hard. Now what does this mean for you and me? How do we translate this into kind of modernity and how we, how we deal with stuff and how we process stuff and how we manage as employers, as managers, as bosses, and even how we work as those who are employed. Let's start with those of you who are bosses, who are managers, who are employers. Here is your job. Your job is to love, serve, honor, support, encourage, and spur on those who are in your employ. Your job is not to boss them around, to berate them, to intimidate them, your job's not to make them feel stupid. Your job's not to make them look down, look down on them. Your job is not to help them discover how they can make you look good. Your job, according to Ephesians 6, verse 5 through 9, is to love, serve, honor, support, encourage, and spur on those who are in your employ. The goal of the manager, the boss, the employer, is to treat employees the way Christ treats us, with grace and kindness. With grace and kindness. Now, please hear me. This does not mean low expectations. This means very, very high expectations. Sometimes the way you serve or honor someone who you employ or you manage or you're the boss of or whatever, sometimes the way you honor them is to wrap your arm around their shoulder and go, wow, you really failed big time on that, didn't you? You're going to have to step it up next time around. That's the way that you honor them. Sometimes you serve and honor and spur on someone that you employ by wrapping your arm around their shoulder and saying, wow, this is not the right job for you. Sometimes you honor them even by terminating them, even by releasing them from a position if they've done something that is, a, is an offense or whatever that, that they need to be terminated because there's consequences in the world. But again, you're not looking down on them or treating them badly or treating them poorly. You're honoring and serving them by helping them recognize that the world has consequences. And it's a very different, it's a very change in, in, in how we think and how we picture what bosses and employers do. The goal here is seeing both yourself and your employee as a subject to Christ. We serve the same boss, we serve the same master. We're on equal ground. And I am here to love, encourage, support, honor you, spur you on. So could you imagine what this might look like? Picture this conversation between two people. Person number one says, how's your job? Person number two says, it's great. Person number one says, why? Person number two says, my boss is gracious, kind, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. 
He loves me, supports me, is generous with time, resources, and money. My boss is very, very supportive and actually serves me. Person number one, wow, that sounds like a really easy job. Person number two, not at all. His expectations are absolutely through the roof. He doesn't expect me to be perfect, but he expects that I work just as hard as he does. He challenges me, inspires me, and lights a fire under my rear end when I need it. I go home every day absolutely exhausted after a long and productive day. Best and hardest job I've ever had in my life. You know the number one, people, number one reason why people quit their job? Number one, it's not compensation. They hate their boss. Number one reason why people quit their job. Could you imagine if you just treated your employees like Jesus treats you? Gracious, kind, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and spurring on and encouraging all the time. We hear a lot more conversations like that. Number two, employees. Those of you who are working for the man, (laughs) those of you who have a job, who have a boss, who have a manager, and that is really almost all of us. There's very few people that don't have anyone to answer to, whether it's a board in my case, whether whether it's a boss, a manager, an employer, whatever. Here's principle number one that Paul wants us to know in verses five through eight. Number one, your work is worship. Your work is worship. Listen close. Paul does not say to this church at Ephesus, work hard because Christ says so. Did you see it? He doesn't say that because God said so. He says, you are working for Jesus. So work hard, work passionately because your work is worship. That's a really basic principle that we could spend five weeks unpacking, but instead of me spending five weeks unpacking that, you can get a subscription to Right Now Media. It's our online digital library. You can get it for free. And a guy named J.D. Greer just did a five-week series called Work as Worship. And this is the principle right here. This is the principle, the bottom line truth. Your work is worship. Remember, I'm working for Jesus. I'm a bondservant of Christ. He pays my wages. I'm doing God's will. My earthly master does not even factor into it. I obey him because I'm working for Jesus. I honor him. I work hard because I'm working for Jesus. My work and your work is worship. Number two, the Christian should be the hardest worker in the company. The Christian should absolutely be the hardest worker in the company. And listen to me, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying the most skilled, the most competent, the most experienced, I'm saying hardest worker. Why? Because you're working for Jesus. Would you ever take a long lunch on Jesus? Would you ever cut corners on Jesus? No, you're working for Jesus. He's your boss. He's my boss. You are working for Christ, and your job is worship no matter what you do. So work hard because you are working unto the Lord. It's a total change. It's completely subversive. It's a radical shift in the perceptions of reality and the imagination of those who lived in the Roman Empire and for those of us who live in this empire, this Western empire, this modern empire. It's a radical shift. How do we typically look at work? Let's just, let's just get it done. Let's get it over with. It's for a paycheck. 
or I work hard because I like it. No. Jesus is your boss. Jesus is my boss. Our work is worship, so we work hard as Christ followers. Be the hardest working person at your company. So now Paul has dealt with work. Well, now we've dealt with work, verses 5 through 9. Let's deal with family, and we're going to spend a little more time on family. We're going to spend a little more time on family. Verses 1 through 4, Paul starts with kids. He has an admonition to children. He's specifically talking to little children, younger children. But how many in this room, how many of you have parents? On three, raise your hand. One, two, three, you have parents. Good. Okay, he's talking to all of us. Perfect. That's awesome. Um, Just wanted to make sure. So he's got principles here for all of us as kids to put into practice. But he's specifically talking to little kids. He's specifically talking to younger kids. Verse 1, here's what he says. Children, obey your parents, God be praised, in the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Paul says kids ought to do two things. One, obey. He says you ought to obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. This Greek word that Paul uses, this this word for obedience, is the same word that they would use when someone answered a door. So you heard a knock at the door, you stand up, you go to the door to respond to the request that was made of you. So he's saying to kids, when parents make a request, get up and go respond to the request. It's a very different word than wives submit to your husband. So that's a very different word, submit and obey. Very different. This word obey is I just respond to requests. Whatever they say, I do. That's obedience. Then, then more importantly for me, and just more difficult for me as a kid, is honor. Honor. That word honor, this is the second thing he wants kids to do, is to accurately estimate the value of something or someone. So, so it really doesn't have anything to do with my external behaviors and habits. It has everything to do with how I feel in my heart. Yikers. That one's a little more tough. Because you can get a kid to do just about anything you want them to do. But honoring you and honoring their parents in their heart is a very different thing. To honor someone uh, is to evaluate that person accurately and honestly. To treat a person with deference, respect, reverence, kindness, courtesy, obedience. That's honor. And obedience is external stuff, and honor is internal stuff, how I feel on the inside. So honoring one's parents is the frame of mind from which obedience proceeds. You honor on the inside, and then you obey on the outside. Paul gives three reasons why kids should do this. One is because in doing so, you're obeying the Lord. He says, children, obey your parents, what? In the Lord. As you obey your parents, you're obeying the Lord. Number two, he says, because it's right. This was my, this was my uh, brilliant exegesis of the passage. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. Obeying your parents is right. That was it. That's what I did this week. Brilliant exegesis. Because it's right. Paul just says it right there. Number three, he says, because it results in blessing. 
He says, honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. And now some of us, if we don't understand the Old Testament, we would say, wow, there's a lot of obedient kids out there that don't live a long time. Like kids get sick, accidents happen, really bad stuff happens, and obedient kids go to be with the Lord long before we think they should. Is, is, that, is that like a promise of the scripture not coming through? No. Remember, this is an Old Testament promise. And so when Paul says, or when the Old Testament says, honor your father and your mother and you'll live long in the land, he's saying, if you honor your father and your mother, you'll go into the promised land, the land of Canaan, and you will live under God's blessing, under his care, in his rest for a long time. So bring that into a New Testament context. Honor your parents and you'll live in God's rest, live in God's blessing, live underneath his care. It results in blessing when we honor our parents. So practically speaking, kids, children, how do we do this? And I want to specifically deal with this honor piece, what it means to honor your parents. We're going to zip through these three questions. You'll see kind of a similar thread, a common thread in all three questions. They're very similar questions. I want to ask it three different ways. How do we honor and obey our parents like we do the Lord. Number one, how do you talk about your parents when they're not listening? How do you talk about your mom and dad when they are not listening? Because to their face, you might say, oh man, you're awesome, you're really great, you know. And then like behind their back, like, oh, my dad's a real jerk, you know. My mom can't find pants that fit her or whatever. I don't know, I don't know what you, I don't know what you say. That may be true. I don't know. I don't know. But how do you talk about them when they're not listening? If you talk poorly about them, if you talk down about them, if you call them names, if you say they're this or that or the other thing, if you say they're clueless in life, whatever, you are not honoring your parents. Change the way you speak about them when they're not listening. Honor. Number two, what does your internal monologue say when your parents request something? Kids? When your parents say, go clean your room, do you say, absolutely, I'll clean my room. You go in your room and, boom, shut the door. You're like, my dad is a real, well, that just, sorry, I moved. Sorry, that was my fault. What does your internal monologue say about your parents, and especially when they request something? Change your internal monologue if it's negative about your parents. That's what Paul's saying. Honor them. Number three, do you honor your parents when they're not looking? Remember, this is about internal. This is not, not like people pleasers, not as eye service, not just when someone's looking. Do you honor your parents when they're not looking? We're done with kids, and I want to talk to dads. Dads. Because here's the thing. This whole idea of honor and obedience, especially honor, especially honor, there's a, there's a child's responsibility there. A child is responsible for honoring his or her parents. That's why, it says, that's why Paul says, obey your parents and honor them. And he talks to children. He says, do that, honor them. But listen, there is most definitely an element of parental responsibility here. In other words, are you going to be the kind of parent that causes your child to be angry with you? That causes your child to be frustrated with you? Are you going to be the kind of parent that causes your child to honor you internally? 
with his or her heart, not just lip service, not just tell you to your face, you're great. In their heart, they honor you. Are you going to be that kind of parent? I'll just be straight with you, and, and this, is, this is not in my notes. I just, I just want to, dads, look at me. I don't care what your kids say to you about who the most important people in their life are. I don't care if they tell you my friends are the most important people in my life, this person I'm dating or that I want to date is the most important person in my life, this person named Instagram is the most important person in my life. That person doesn't exist, by the way. It's not a real person. The internet is not a person. I don't care what they tell you. You, dads, are the most important person in that child's life. So Paul, when he starts in verse 4 here, and we're going to spend some time in verse 4, he doesn't say, moms and dads do this. He says, fathers. He has instruction for mom and dads. There's principles here that moms can apply, but he says, fathers, dads, because he knows you are mission critical in your child's life when it comes to your child honoring you and honoring Jesus. You are absolutely mission critical. So when we talk about verse 4 here, dads, please, I beg you, listen. For the sake of the church, for the sake of your family, for the sake of your children, for the sake of this country we live in, when Paul exhorts dads to behave a certain way, to parent a certain way, please, please listen. So remember, he's trying to capsize realities, right? He's trying to overturn realities. He's trying to redefine imagination. Let me just tell you a little bit about fatherhood in the Roman Empire. Let me tell you a little bit about how dads would have behaved in the Roman Empire. One, fatherhoods would regularly, uh, fathers would regularly sell their kids into slavery. Like, and if they sold them three times, they couldn't be sold anymore. Like, like, a, like a white elephant gift exchange or something. Like property. Fathers would regularly do this. Fathers were encouraged to kill newborns that were visibly deformed. They didn't always do it, but they were very much encouraged to do so. Fathers made all marriage decisions. Fathers owned all property. As long as they lived, even if you were a child with your own business, making money and buying property, your dad always owned it and could do whatever he wanted with it. Fathers were typically absent in the Roman Empire, especially rich dads, and they would farm out their fatherhood. They would hire household servants to do their fathering for them. Those household servants were called guardians. Dads would make the rules, but they'd hire other people to enforce them so they could just go do whatever the heck they wanted to do. And Paul says, we're about to whoop, turn that on its head. So here's the deal. The empire said fatherhood is a guessing game. Your best guess is great, whatever you think is awesome, and in fact, hire someone else to do it for you. And the Bible says in Ephesians 3 that God is the first and best dad. First and best. It says that fatherhood derives its name from God. Every family in heaven and on earth derives its name from God the Father. He's got some instructions on how fatherhood works, and we ought to heed those instructions. Number two, the empire says children are a bore, a downer, a burden. 
So the empire they lived in and the empire we live in used murder as a form of birth control. The Bible says that's absolutely not true. Psalm 127 that says that children are a blessing from the Lord all the time, no matter when and where they come from. They're a stinky, expensive, energy-sucking blessing, but they are a blessing nonetheless. It's the only one of God's blessing that poops itself. That's the only one I can find. But children are an absolute blessing from the Lord. Number three, here's what the empire would tell you and then would tell, or would tell you and me and would tell the church in Ephesus as well. The empire would say, modify their behavior, but don't worry about their heart. Their heart will be fine. You just are trying to modify behavior. Or let them be whatever they want to be. Just create an environment, they'll just grow up to be whatever they want to be. The Bible says children are sinners. Children are sinners. So our job as as Christ-following parents isn't just to raise moral children and modify behavior. Our job as Christ-following parents is, is to raise children who love the Lord and have a new heart. Did you have to teach your kids to be selfish? Did you have to teach your kids the word mine? They just come out like that. I had a friend, he had a two-year-old, like pushed a baby down the stairs this week. The baby's fine, it's fine, it's fine, everybody's okay. But it's like he didn't have to teach his kid how to do that because they're sinners. They're sinners. So when Paul comes along and he exhorts fathers in verse four, he exhorts dads to behave a certain way. Remember, this is the biblical reality. He's rejecting the empire's reality and he's saying, this is the biblical reality. God is the first and best dad. Children are a blessing and they are sinners when they come out. So we're about heart change, not just behavior change. Verse four, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. One thing to not do and two things to do. First, don't provoke your kids to anger. Don't provoke them to being mad. And the second thing, what to do is discipline them and instruct them. Discipline them and instruct them. Let's talk about what not to do, and then we're going to talk about what to do. Dads, how might a father provoke his kids to anger? How might a dad provoke his kids to anger? In this reality, in this empire, selling your kids into slavery would probably be a great start. How to provoke your kids into anger? That does not happen in our reality, but we still have a lot of really clever ways to provoke our kids to anger. Uh, I, have a, I have a wonderful dad, but I have a dad, and so I have a lot of re- uh, ways that dads can provoke their kids to anger. It was really easy to make a very long list. I'm totally kidding, totally kidding. I hope my dad's listening to this. He'll think that's funny. Um, but I did. I made a list of 12 things, 12 ways, surefire ways that you can provoke your kids to anger. Paul says, don't do that. Don't provoke your kids to anger. Don't do these things to cause your kids to be angry with you or angry with God. Let's go through the 12. You're not going to be able to write them all down. We're going to blitz through them quick. They're going to be up here on the screen. Pick one or two that you might want to make some adjustments, make some course corrections in your life this week. First, here's surefire ways to provoke your kids to anger. If you do not practice what you preach, If you don't practice what you preach, that's a great way to provoke your kids to anger. Here's what that looks like. 
Your kid hits another kid with a toy on the head or whatever, and you say, look, that was the wrong thing to do. You need to go over to your kid and say, oh, kid, I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? You can play with a toy. You wipe the tears away. Give them a hug. Go do that and go do that now. Then your kid sees you do something wrong, sees you treat your spouse in an in a inappropriate way, get angry with your spouse or get short with your spouse, sees you do something with friends and family, and you did something wrong and you know full well, and instead of saying, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me, you buy a gift, or you try to let it blow over, kids pick up on that. They know, dad tells me to do this when I do something wrong, but then when dad does something wrong, he doesn't have to do the same thing. Something's wacky there. I don't care how old your kids are, they're getting it. It's a great way to provoke them to anger. Practice what you preach. Number two. Number two. If you don't repent of your own sin, especially with your kids, it's a great way to provoke your kids to anger. Great way to provoke your kids to anger. Look, you're always the dad. You're always the head of the household. You're always, you're always raising kids. They're never supposed to be in authority over you. But when you do something wrong, when you place unreasonable blame on your child, when you make a mistake, when you act out in anger, go to your kid and say, I repent and I'm sorry. If you don't repent of your own sin, it's a great way to provoke your kids to anger. If you're quick to criticize and you withhold encouragement, it's a great way to provoke your kids to anger. Let's just do a little pop quiz here. How many of you, if your dad, your earthly dad, called you today and said, I am just calling you and we're going to talk for three minutes, 240 seconds, whatever, 6, 12, 18, 180 seconds. I'm, I'm not a mathematician, I'm a pastor, please. Um, talk for 180 seconds, and for those 180 seconds, all I'm going to do is encourage you. I'm proud of you. I love you. You're doing great. You make, you make our name look good. I'm proud to be your dad. How many of you, even as adults, some of you very mature adults, if your earthly dad called you and did that today, how many of you would radically change your day, your week, your month, and even your life? Just those 180 seconds of encouragement from your earthly dad. Raise your hands on three. One, two, three. There you go. Young dad, start now. Start now. And it's never too late. Never too late. Encourage your kids. Love them. Tell them they're great. Tell them they're a blessing. Number four, if you're abusive, it should be easy one, physically, emotionally, verbally. If you hit, kick, shove, intimidate, provoke, antagonize, escalate, stop it. It's provoking your kids to anger. Number five, if you're not present, both physically and emotionally, it will provoke your kids to anger. Number six, if you publicly humiliate your kids, it'll provoke your kids to anger. Just a parenting tip, when you discipline your children, not if, because we're going to get to the discipline part in a minute, when, pull them into another room. Pull them into a private conversation. Don't do it in front of your friends and family. Don't do it in front of their friends. Say, hey, I love you. We're just going to go in this other room and have a conversation about what God says and about what you did and about some course corrections that need to get made. Discipline them in private. Don't publicly humiliate your kids. It will provoke them to anger. Number seven, if you are clueless as to the, as to the way your specific child feels loved. If you don't know that your child needs time, physical touch, words of affirmation, you give them words of affirmation all the time and all your kid wants is time with you, 
and there's a disconnect there, it will provoke your child to anger. Number eight, if you're no fun, if you're no fun, provoke your kid to anger. Dads, when you go to the princess tea party and you're drinking imaginary tea out of like a thimble-sized cup, you are going to need to wear a tiara. <laughs> that's, what, that's what people wear to the princess party. If you show up to the princess party and you're not wearing a tiara, you're going to feel dumb. You're just going to feel stupid. Because everybody else is going to be wearing a tiara. Put a smile on your face. Do fun stuff. If not, you'll provoke your kids to anger. If you're not generous, number nine, if you're not generous, if you're stingy, and some of us think that generosity and, and stewardship are mutually exclusive. I can either be generous or I can be a good steward. I can't be both. That's absolutely not correct. You know how I know that? Because Jesus was generous and he was a good steward. When he fed 5,000 people, what did he say? We're going to break bread. We're going to hand out some fish. Everybody take everything you want. There's plenty to go around. Take all that you need. And then at the end of the meal, what did he say to his disciples? Go pick up what's left over because nothing goes to waste. Be generous with your kids, with your time, with your money. We've got an elder that just paid for a bunch of his family members, including his children, to go on a really awesome vacation. Experience together. Let's go spend some time as a family. Great dad. Great dad. That very same elder, like three months ago, I watched him drive six kilometers down the road because the cappuccino at McDonald's was 30 cents cheaper than the cappuccino at Starbucks. I'm going, that's the dumbest thing I've ever, you just spent that money in gas, you know, driving over to the, he's telling me, look, stewardship. You could be a good steward and be generous at the same time. So teach your kids that. Be generous. If you're known for annoying or frustrating commands, it will provoke your kids to anger. If you tend to place unreasonable blame on your children, it will provoke your kids to anger. If you're governed by a tempestuous personality, it will provoke your kids to anger. So stop doing those things and start doing these other things too. Discipline and instruct. Discipline and instruct. That discipline piece means this. I model godliness. I model kindness. I model humility to my kids. And I discipline them into behaving that way as well. I encourage them. I root them on. And when they don't model godly behavior, I will correct them. That's what discipline is. That's what God does for you and me. And what does God say about himself? He disciplines those he, fill it in, loves. If you love your kids, let God be the first and best dad. Model your fatherhood after God's fatherhood and discipline your kids because he disciplines you and me. And he's the first and best dad. Last thing I want to talk about is this, this instruction piece. And we might go a little bit over time today, but it won't, it won't go long. Here's the deal. Paul says, don't provoke your kids to anger. Do discipline and then instruct. Instruct your kids. This means to talk to your kids about the realities of the empire that you're living in and the way that Scripture overturns those realities. Here's, here's what instruction means. Don't, don't uh, provoke your kids to anger. Do discipline and instruct. Here's what it means. The world is a schoolroom and dad is the teacher. That's what it means. 
The world is your schoolroom, class is always in session, and dad is the instructor. Please don't attempt to shelter your kids from everything. Of course, there are things that are just age-appropriate. You want to like, you know, show your kids a certain movie when they're four years old or let them listen to certain music or whatever. But you can't always protect them. That's why Deuteronomy 6 says this. These commands I give to you today are to be on your hearts. And what do you do with them? Verse 7, impress them on your children. Talk to them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. The world is a schoolroom and dad is the teacher. Instruct your kids all the time. Teach them how to process the world around them by instructing them. The world is your schoolroom, dads, and you are the teacher. What does that mean practically? TiVo. TiVo. I thought TiVo was invented so that we could record the gold medal game while we came to worship. Then we could go home and watch it. That's why I thought TiVo was invented. That's actually not true. TiVo was invented so you could hit the pause button on your TV and talk to your kids about that commercial they just saw. What did did that commercial just tell us about that woman's body? What did that commercial just tell us about what, what, what it means to be rich? What did that commercial just tell us about family? Tell me the story that you just heard in that commercial while the TV's on pause. Tell me the story. What did, what did that just communicate to you? Let's talk about what the Bible says now. Instruct your kids. I thought that seat belts were invented so your kids would be safe. It's absolutely not true. Seat belts were invented so your kids could be totally immobile so that you could instruct them. That's why God invented seat belts. Strap them down. So when you hear these lyrics on the radio, I'll let you put your hands on me in my skin-tight jeans. I'll be your teenage dream tonight. You hit stop, and you say you're not going anywhere because you're in a seatbelt. We're going to talk about it. And some of you think, my kids never heard that song. Bull. Two years ago, that song was number one. Number one on the Billboard charts in the U.S. and Canada and U.K. Number one. And your kids, if they're teenagers, they have heard that song, and they could probably sing it to you. Do you hit stop and say, you know what? We just heard something. Tell me about that message. What's that saying about you, about your body? That outfit in the window of the store, see how the neckline meets the hemline? You see that? (laughs) Let's talk about that. And some of you, oh, my kids are teenagers, yeah, yeah, yeah. or my, my, you know, my kids are too young for that, my kids are too young for that. Let me read you some other lyrics. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. Is that what the Bible says? But that's what let it go from Frozen just told your kids. That Disney movie that just came out. I'm not against Disney movies, that's fine. I love Aladdin and all that stuff, old school stuff. New stuff's over my head, man, I'm too stupid for that. Um... What I'm saying is that your kids are getting messages all the time about what it means to live and work and play. Sexuality, family, money, how to interact with the world around them. Do you hit stop and instruct? Number three, I thought an allowance was invented so your kids don't spend all your money. That's not true. Allowances were invented so that you have leverage. Your kids can whine and cry all they want, but if there's money involved, they will always come back, and you have leverage. There's a few bucks involved. You could teach them about stewardship. When my wife was little, when she was a little girl, she was like seven, eight years old, something like that, um, she got like 20 bucks a week for allowance. 
And some of you are thinking, well, I knew she was spoiled. I knew it. Her parents gave her like 20 bucks a week for allowance, but 10% went to tithe and 10% went to savings, and they had to buy their own toiletries. So on Sunday morning, my wife used to tell me about uh, her and her younger sister, a couple years younger than her, get up real early on Sunday mornings and fight for the Sunday paper. Why? Because there were coupons. (laughs) And when it was all said and done, they had like four bucks a week left. But their parents instructed them to honor God with their finances. It was invented for leverage. Use it. Use a seatbelt. Strap them in. Instruct your kids. Don't provoke them to anger. Discipline and instruct. We're going to close with this, and the band is going to lead us in a song to close. Here's the deal. Men of God, even if you don't know Jesus, we're not even talking about the Bible anymore. We're just going to talk about what statistics say. Here they are. Ready? Men, your sons are going to grow up to be just like you. Just like you. I People tell me all the time, I would love to meet your parents. I say, yeah, my mom is outstanding. You've already met my dad. He's got a different hair color than me. That's it. Your sons are going to grow up to be just like you. And get this, your daughters are going to grow up to marry somebody just like you. Just like you. That's what statistics say. So don't provoke your children unto wrath. Don't provoke them to anger. Discipline and instruct them. Model godliness. Teach them to honor their father and their mother and teach them to honor Jesus above all things. Amen? Let's pray together. Band, you guys can come back up and lead us in that closing song. Let's pray. God, we love you today and we uh, accept what we have heard from your word this morning. That we are to be managers, bosses, employers that treat our employees with kindness and respect and generosity that have a very high standard, Jesus, just as you do for us. But nobody's above anybody else. We all stand equal before the heavenly master. God, teach us to be workers that work hard. Teach us to be workers that worship you in our work. God, teach us to be children that honor and obey parents. And God, teach us to be fathers that do not provoke our children to anger, but discipline and instruct them so that they would learn to love you and sing of your faithfulness and your kindness and your goodness. In the name of Christ, the people of God with enthusiasm said, amen.